0: Like the Hunger Games back there. <laughs> Just go. All right. Hey, good morning. Um, as Jeremy said, my name's Tanner House, and I live in Odessa. Last week, I was preaching in San Angelo, and when the pastor of that church said I was planting a church in Odessa, everybody cheered. And that was the weirdest reaction to Odessa that I could have ever gotten. When he said it, y'all just kind of looked at him. That's, that's what I'm used to. Um, Odessa is a weird, weird little place. Uh, 150,000 people, churches on every single corner in town, and super dark and super in need of the gospel. So my wife and I have been there almost eight years and spent the first six trying to get out of there. Um, kind of like in a, in a Jonah-type moment, I was, felt like, please God, not Odessa, please, anywhere else on the planet. I'll move to Pampa. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it was, but just over the course of praying and a lot of just seeking God's will for our life. He is firmly uh, planting us in Odessa, and we are super thrilled to be there. Which, if you would have known me six, seven, eight, ten, twelve 10, 12 years ago, it, that is just the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we have fallen in love with that place. And so, we are going to get started in the spring of 2020, trying to plant as close to the University of Texas in the Permian Basin, as possible, that's our Division Two school uh, that has about ten thousand students, and so we are really looking forward to getting rolling. I was telling Ricky earlier; uh, he's a new resident, and I'm like kind of an OG resident. I'm doing a victory lap. I love the residency so much. I tacked on an extra year just because I had no idea what I was doing with my life, and so here we are, got it figured out, and now. Uh, I'm really honored and humbled to be uh, be with you guys this morning. Jeremy told me if I did a good job, he'd have me back. And so, since this may be the last time I'm going to see some of you guys, um, let's just get going. I'm going to be in Hebrews 3. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. If you're on your phone or your tablet, I'm using the uh, the ESV. Alright, so... I have four kids. Um, their ages range from two to six. I currently have two two-year-olds, okay? So if you've ever experienced or heard of, like, the terrible twos, I'm doing that times two. Uh, and I'm telling you that the terrible twos actually starts at 18 months, and then it lasts until they're, like, four and a half Uh, The terrible twos do not turn into the terrific threes. And then after four and a half, it doesn't actually stop. The sinning and the defiance just gets a little more sophisticated and a little more sneaky. But I really can't complain. Uh, My kids are awesome. We have been incredibly blessed. God has built our family through foster care. And adoption, and we are just thrilled with the blessings that God has given us. I tell people all the time, I do not deserve kids that good. If you would have known me as a child, you would completely agree. Uh, I do not deserve those kids. But anyways, one of the most interesting things about parenting kids that young um, is anytime we go to the store or my kids see something like the new toy, they need it. There's this constant discussion about the difference between my kids' wants versus my kids' needs. So, like, for example, we go to Walmart, and my five-year-old, she's always like, I love that Elsa dress. I need that Elsa dress. And I say, Maya, you don't need that Elsa dress. You want it, but you don't need it. Or like to my six-year-old, Levi, you have to eat your vegetables. You need to eat your vegetables because they are good for you. I know you don't want to eat your vegetables because they don't taste all that great, but you need to eat your vegetables. Or mom and I want you to go to bed because you need your sleep or you will not be good at school tomorrow. So this doesn't just apply to our, to kids. As we get older, our understanding of wants and needs is still very skewed. We often apply the same childlike logic to the stuff we want and the stuff we think will satisfy us. And it may for a quick second. But then it ends up in tomorrow's garage sale. I feel like our American dream mindset has filled our lives with giant TVs, nice vehicles, potentially nice 401ks or massive credit card debt, depending on which way you go. Uh, sex and relationships, food, and a myriad of other things. In all of this our attempts to satisfy something deep inside of us. A deep need, a deep longing, a hole we fill in our lives can only be satisfied by Jesus. So we have some basic physical needs, obviously, like food, water, shelter, clothing. But, but what, about, what about our spiritual needs? One commentator said plainly, we have two basic spiritual needs. We need to know God. And because we need to know God, we need a way to know God. So with that in mind, let's look at this text in Hebrews 3 and see what see what Jesus has to say on it this morning. And, and just so we're all on the same page, if you're one of those like linear thinkers, you like things beginning to end. Uh, I'm going to start in the middle, kind of like squeezing the toothpaste from the, from the middle of the tube uh, and then we're going to work from the outside in. So um, just just sit tight. If you're one of those linear thinkers, it's going to be okay. We're going we're to deal with it all. But first, can we pray and ask God to do a work here today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful people. Lord Jesus, we are, are needy people. Lord, we... Thank you that you are in the business of calling sinners to repent and calling people into your family. Lord, I pray that uh, where conviction would take place, uh, need to take place, Lord, that, that you, Holy Spirit, would be diligent and active in this room this morning. And Lord, where encouragement is needed, Lord, may you be a God that's near to us today. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen. All right. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So the book of Hebrews was written to... A group of Jewish Christians uh, who are being persecuted for leaving Judaism. That is about all we know about this book factually and contextually. Um, There are several theories about where this church was or when this church was located in in history. But all of these are just theories. Also, there's a bunch of theories as to who who the writer was. Uh, I'm not sure how much Jeremy has dealt with this, uh, but I think to sit around and argue some of those minor points and argue this stuff, that's not what God intended for his people uh, to glean from this beautiful letter. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Group of Jewish Christians, church somewhere in the first century, they received this letter. So when we get to our passage today, the writer has already dealt with a number of things. He's working through a... Christology, like who Jesus is, and in chapters 1 and 2, he's been showing them that Jesus is superior to angels. I think that's significant, but as Jewish Christians, this realization wouldn't be like that big of a deal. Like, they understand the Old Testament. David in the Psalms talks about the Messiah, who this group of people would know to be Jesus. He says, he made him a little lower than the angels for a little while. And so I assume that they understood that Jesus Christ better than angels. But I think the writer is kind of like working them like a boxer. Like he's setting them up. He's like getting them to drop their hands. So he can punch them in the throat with this with this next truth. This passage is a, is a transition in the book. Pushing the readers towards a more central theme of, of faith in Jesus. So... He tells them, Jesus is better than the angels. Then he goes, hey, Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses. Moses is like the Jew of all Jews. Super Jew, if you will. It's like being a fan of Superman. And then finding out years later that Superman was just some dude. Uh, this would have been shocking to these folks. In Pampa terms, it's like finding out that Zach Thomas or, or Woody Guthrie or Dog the Bounty Hunter or just some like normal guys from town. And the point of writing this isn't to like minimize Moses. Moses was the only person in Jewish history to be both a prophet of the people and a high priest, which means he spoke to the people what God had told them. And then he also met with God face to face. He is a significant figure for this church. So consider for a second the life of Moses. He was born in a time where the king of Egypt, a.k.a. Pharaoh, was killing all of the baby boys as soon as they were born. So he was born and he was kept alive by his parents. They then placed him in a basket and set him adrift in the Nile River just in faith, hoping that God would spare him. And so he floated down the river and ended up in the palace of Pharaoh. He grew up in luxury, it would seem. At some point, he he killed a guy and and fled. He left, left Egypt. And while he was in the wilderness, he was working as a shepherd. He met God in a burning bush who told him to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. So Moses went back to Egypt, liberated his people from slavery, and led them to the promised land. And with the exception of like a few weak moments, it would seem that Moses was a faithful dude. In Deuteronomy, when it records his death, it says Moses never became a frail old man. It says his eyes were never dimmed and his, and his legs were never, never weakened. He just died. His time in history and in service to the Lord had come to an end, and and He died. But wow, what an incredible life and service to God. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find another person in the Old Testament that served as faithfully and and under as much pressure as Moses did, and yet his confidence in the promises and the faithfulness of God never wavered. And yet the writer would say, Jesus is greater than Moses. Our passage says that the builder of the house has more glory than the house itself. And the builder of the house and everything is God. And so on a theological level, if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, you understand that Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus is a part of the Godhead that created everything. So this passage is saying that Jesus created Moses. So he is greater than Moses. John Piper describes it like this. He says, imagine that a group of decathlon athletes are sitting in the room uh, after they had just completed their competition. And they're comparing uh, the skills of each other. Like one guy's like, hey, did you see how far I threw that javelin? And one guy was like, yeah, but I threw the discus further than, than any of you guys. And then a third guy was like, but my shot put was the best. And then you've got this high jumper that's like, but I jumped higher than any of you. And then Jesus is listening to all of this. He's in the same room. I imagine in this hypothetical scenario, Jesus is in like an Adidas tracksuit made of golden fleece. And it's, it's glowing. And he interjects into this conversation. He says, yeah, but I created each of you. So I win the decathlon. That's what, that's what John Piper's saying is happening here. Beyond all of this, it says, our text says that Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. But Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. So maybe like you're the owner of a business or you're an owner of a company of some kind, and let's say you have some employees. And let's assume that in a hard-working culture such as Pampa, Texas, you have some really good employees. Then imagine one day you hire one of your kids. Your son, your daughter, also a really good employee, and you're getting ready to retire. Most people would then leave their business to their kid if their kid's not a giant screw-up, right? Right? That's the illustration that the writer of Hebrews is making. Moses has been a great employee, but Jesus is inheriting the family business, so to speak. Jesus owns the house of God, thus making him superior to Moses. But it does not stop there. The writer of of Hebrews gives a few things to consider in two thousand. Plus, years later, there are some things we need to consider as well. If you've been at church a long time, or if you've been walking with Jesus for for many years, it's potentially really easy to miss a couple of things here in this text that this text offers you. Go back and look at verse 1. The writer says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. Church, don't miss this this morning. The writer of Hebrews calls his Christian readers brothers. This isn't just for the church in the first century. That is for Christians throughout history. We are now a part of a family. A heavenly family. A called family. And not only are we a part of a family. But in verse 1 it says that we are holy brothers. The word holy means to be set Apart, It is a special distinction. In chapter 2 that y'all dealt with last week says that we are made holy because Jesus has made us holy through his death and his resurrection. Jesus transfers our guilt and sin onto himself, defeating sin and death. And now if you are in Christ, you are his brother. Because of that, he is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. Jesus came, our text says, as the apostle and high priest of the confession. Meaning this, because he is an apostle, he speaks the words of God. An apostle in uh, New Testament times could only speak what his superior told him to say. So when Jesus humbled himself, steps out of perfection, becoming God in flesh... He was submissive to the Father as his ultimate authority. Jesus then proclaims the very word of God, the good news of Jesus, that we need a Savior who has come to ransom humanity as a possession and as an inheritance. So because of this, the writer asks his readers to consider Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Later in the letter, he's going to call Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. But, but why is this significant? When he's asking his readers to, to consider Jesus, what's he really asking of them? This group of, of Christians is really experiencing a lot of hard. Uh, they have left Judaism and they're being persecuted because of it. And they're actually considering a return to Judaism. In their minds, they have to be considering, like, is all of this following Jesus really worth all of this? He's telling them to consider Jesus. Uh, Growing up, I grew up in a a really good Southern Baptist church in Hobbs, New Mexico. Most people don't woo with that one either. Um, I was taught a really cheesy phrase in my Sunday school class. But as an adult, I find it super helpful. Uh, Mildred Farmer, my Sunday school teacher, would say, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you need to stop and see what it's there for. So he's asking them to consider what he closed chapter 2 with. Chapter 2, verse 14, I'm going to read that a few verses. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, In the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus put on flesh, became like one of us, he accomplished the things that we could not. He defeats death on our behalf. But listen the Christian life, it's not without struggle. Jesus himself was tempted and Jesus himself suffered. So Jesus himself, as our high priest, knows what we're going through. He sees you in the midst of your struggle. He sees you in the midst of your suffering. He sees you in the midst of your trial. And he knows you and he loves you. There's this entire theology built around the idea that the Christian life, is easy, Like, there's an entire theology built around this idea that the Christian should not struggle or endure suffering or ever experience trials. That all of life after Christ comes in is smooth sailing. But that's just not right. The writers of the New Testament, Paul and Peter, whoever wrote Hebrews, the Gospels of Jesus, they actually tell us that we will suffer For the sake of following Christ. James 1 says, We're told to count it all joy, not if we encounter various trials, but when we encounter them. Listen, these passages are are really hard for me because I would love just an easy, comfortable existence and just get to coast through life being a highly extroverted guy that gets to hang out and not have to worry about any any problems. I really like just being comfortable. But that's not how that's not how it goes. Trials have their purpose. God is working in them to grow us. Through them, he grows our dependency on him. He is growing us in our faith. And it is hard. I've had moments in my life where I'd rather be anywhere else than in any other situation than the one I'm currently in. Last year... Uh, foster care pushed my theology of suffering to the very end. (laughs) Uh, God used that situation to reveal a lot of my selfishness and a lot of entitlement. And after several hours of complaining and moaning to God, God was gracious to reveal to me that all of this suffering has a point. And despite how I felt, God had not forgotten me. He was with us. He is working for our good and for his glory. So, what if, church, our position and our idea about suffering and struggle and trials were shifted? What if we prayed instead of, God, please release me from this? What if we prayed, God, please don't deliver me until you've developed me? Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. I don't want to suffer and struggle, but I need Jesus. And God in his goodness is willing to remind us of his nearness to us. And oftentimes that happens when we are in the midst of a trial because we are pushed to to rock bottom. The writer of Hebrews promises faithful Christians an inheritance if we hold on to the confession of our faith. Throughout the remainder of of the letter, uh, he's constantly warning this group of people not to drift away. Hebrews 6 calls it apostasy. It's a hotly debated passage amongst Christian denominations. I'm glad Jeremy's going to get to deal with it later and not me. Um, It's where the idea of like falling from grace or once saved, always saved comes from. But our text and others in Hebrews, while they aren't disagreeing with this idea... Uh, they're taking it to a deeper understanding. This is deeper than uh, our traditional Baptist or other denominational church context used to teach us where we would like walk down to the preacher and say a prayer and then get baptized and that was it. Like no discipleship. All those things, like praying with your preacher and getting baptized, all of these things are really good. But if that is the end of your Christian experience... I would argue there was actually no beginning to your Christian experience because the Bible calls us to more than that. We must examine the faithfulness and the fruitfulness of a life. Listen, there is no conflict between the teaching that all true believers are safe in the hands of God and the teaching that emphasizes that Christians must persevere in faith until the end. All true Christians will continue in the faith until they are gathered to God. But it is also true that our Christian faith is only proved in steadfastness under trial. Philip says that we are saved by faith alone, but the test of our faith comes through our willingness to persevere under difficulty and persecution. Those who would betray Jesus to this world reveal by their actions that they never truly possess saving faith. And we're never truly saved. Anybody in here remember like your geometry class in high school? In my geometry class we dealt with like if-then statements or conditional statements. Um, The writer is introducing one here. He says you are being built up into a house of God. If and only if you hold firm in the confidence in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. If you stand firm then you get Jesus as your inheritance. We don't get to pick and choose when we want to follow Jesus and when we don't. This view is driven by comfort and consumerism, and we serve a God that desires more and deserves more than that. When times get tough, we must remain confident that God is using all of the hard for our good and for his glory. In Christ, we have been given a way to know God and a way to God, especially in our weakest and hardest moments. So consider Jesus, who suffered in our place, so for eternity we don't have to suffer and we get to experience the blessings that he deserved. As God is true to his purpose and being, so we, the Christian, must be a true reflection of his creator and redeemer. Hebrews 10.23 exhorts us to remain true to our calling, saying, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. There is a lot of grace for us as sinners. It's not uncommon for us to not suffer well. But may our hope never be primarily in the relief of our situation, but in Christ who will bring everything to completion in due time. May we be a people who cling to Jesus both in the good times and the hard times. For he who promised was faithful, is faithful, and will continue to be faithful. Stand firm, holy brothers. Uh, It may get worse before it gets better. But if we believe what Jesus said, these struggles won't even be worth mentioning in view of the eternity that awaits us in Christ. Let us be a people who are constantly reminded of Christ's faithfulness to us. May we be a church family that practices the one another's of scripture, that bears one another's burdens. If you are struggling or if you feel like you're suffering, listen, God has not forgotten you. God has not done with you. Through Jesus, we have been given a Father who sees us in our pain and who loves us. We also have a God who understands even if no one else does. He endured the cross, enduring our sin and our shame and our guilt on our behalf. So believer, cling to Jesus. Man, if you're not a believer, consider Jesus who willingly endured the cross, the punishment of the cross, defeating sin and death and being raised to life for us. God is so gracious to draw sinners to himself. So may we consider Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for that truth that we have been given a heavenly calling, Lord, that you have endured our sin and our shame and our guilt, Lord. May we not grow weary from doing good, Lord, but may we cling to the hope that is you, Lord, the hope of an inheritance, And an eternity spent with you, Lord. I thank you that you are better than angels, Lord. I thank you that you are superior to Moses, Lord. And may we put our hope and our confidence in that. Lord Jesus, I'd ask that you uh, just work in our hearts uh, for the remainder of our time together. Thank you for Redeemer Pampa. Lord, may you bless this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen.